Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 281, Estrogen Concerns and Updates. Last week, you joined us for Why You Need Estrogen, where we covered the beneficial role of estrogen in bone, breast, vaginal health, as well as its impact on mood and even migraines. In today's episode, we'll be covering the concerns with an excess or too much estrogen, as well as updates on estrogen dominance, and talking a little bit about the world of estrogen replacement therapy considerations and the pros, cons of some of the varied forms. Yes. So as I mentioned last week, we were going to do one loaded episode called like estrogen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so this one would be the bad and the ugly side of things. Yeah. It have gotten real long. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So I think that there'll be a lot of information in the past episodes that we've kind of built off of our series on aging gracefully. We were talking a lot about vaginal health, vaginal atrophy, dryness, or lack of lubrication, or uh, tissue breakdown. And that's where in last week's episode, we talked a lot about the importance of having ample estrogen and and really in the two aging areas, we think of vaginal health and bone health, but we didn't have time to really get into if you're requiring estrogen, um, you know, what would be the best forms to consider and weighing out the pharmacological options as well as bioidentical. And that's what we'll start with unpacking in this episode, as well as the side effects and considerations with using some of those therapies. So last week, if you missed it, go check that out. That's where we're really talking about how estrogen gets depleted in the body. We talked a lot about the stress access and steroidal hormones in general. We talked about the importance of having ample fat in the diet to support healthy hormone balance and a lot of food as medicine support. And um, today we'll be, I'm sure, layering in a lot of that fun stuff as well. All right. Before we get started, any updates? Yes. And then we are so excited for our retreat. The retreat is officially closed as far as sales. So sorry if you missed out. This is the only one we're going to do this year, but we're so excited working with all of the brands that are helping to fill our swag bags and sponsoring stations and food as medicine workshops throughout here. Um, I'm sure we'll do an entire episode as a wrap up on that, but that'll be happening a couple weeks out. And um, on that vein, I want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Santa Cruz Medicinals. So y'all know that we are big proponents of cannabidiol or CBD. And CBD is really important when we're looking at a connection of stress, inflammation, neurological health, and even hormone health. Our body is wired with an endocannabinoid system, and this interplays with our brain-gut access. So when we use the compound CBD, we get a mellow out, anti-inflammatory, stress-regulating, neurologically supporting influence in the body that can offset that fight-or-flight nervous system response, which can play a favorable role in anything from IBS to, again, chronic inflammation to insomnia and and beyond. So this is something that can be really therapeutic to layer in on top of some of our stress formula bundles. Uh, You can use CBD in your morning coffee to offset the caffeine adrenaline response or as a tincture in the middle of a work meeting or maybe even at the end of the day to get deep restful sleep in fact i'd recommend beyond their concentrated mct oil based tinctures checking out the deep sleep caps which will be included in our swag bags at the retreat as well Um, those were a big hit and definitely something that i love to use a couple times a week on top of our sleep support tablets um, with the melatonin in there the deep sleep capsules from santa cruz medicinals provide you 50 milligrams of CBD, valerian root, and L-theanine, which really help to get into that restful alpha brainwave space. And when we're looking at CBD, the big thing I always like to emphasize is potency and purity. So, you know, we do appreciate that they do third-party testing on all of their batches to ensure that you are getting the dose that's noted on the bottle. 
And also that we're not worried about butane contamination from extraction or mold or other negative compounds that would be more harmful than beneficial. So at Santa Cruz Medicinals, we know that we're getting a potent and pure product. And in the world of potency, we really see efficacy in the world of like 30 to 60 milligrams a day. A lot of products out there start with like 5 to 10 milligrams. So over at Santa Cruz Medicinals, they actually recommend that you do a 100 milligram a day challenge for a week where you take 100 milligrams of CBD, see how you feel, and then you can level down or up from there. So that might be like one 33 milligram dropper in your morning coffee, might be another 33 milligram dropper midday, and then another one at bed to get very close to that 100 milligram dosage. So go on over to scmedicinals.com and use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. When you use AllieMillerRD, you're going to get 15% off your order and free shipping. And again, that's at scmedicinals.com. All right, let's do this thing. Um, So kicking off, let's just talk about some of the drivers of excessive estrogen or um, kind of the risk factors of what can set you up to have too much estrogen in the body. Yeah, so we think of weight gain as well as rapid weight loss, which is an interesting connection there because they sound to be opposing in theory. You know, when we're talking about this, that's the connection that our adipocytes or our body fat cells themselves are estrogenic. So we tend to see estrogen dominance associated with higher body fat percent, um, as well as especially we see as a symptom of estrogen dominance, more of the belly fat and the abdomen. But we can also see estrogen dominance or excessive estrogen levels from rapid weight loss, because if you lost a good amount of body fat and your liver wasn't successful in clearing the uh, hormone from the fat, you'll get an overwhelming amount of estrogenic action. So we could see on both ends of the spectrum, excess body weight or rapid weight weight loss as big drivers. We also see any hormonal transitional timestamp. So this could be from puberty as a surge of excess estrogen. And this is where we might see changes in skin health and such. We also can see this um, during times of pregnancy and postpartum as far as hormonal transition hits. And then postpartum and menopause as influences where we could see often with postpartum and menopause suppressed estrogen levels. Uh, But again, depending on the variation of what's going on in the body, we can't see dynamics there. When we're looking at metabolic health, I like to look at the liver. And so individuals that have elevated liver enzymes, if ALT or AST in a comp blood panel is elevated, that would show some level of stagnation in the liver or issues with detoxification. And often we'll also see estrogen levels in excess and estrogen itself can tax the liver or stress the liver out. We can see estrogen building up in the body from exposure to toxins alone, as well as specifically those endocrine disrupting compounds. And even deeper in that, you know, we think of endocrine disruptors as our plastics, our perfumes or fragrances, and our pesticides. So this could be in industrialized produced foods. This could be in the receipt paper that you're getting from the grocery store. This can be in your plastic water bottles. And specific to the world of estrogen dominance, uh, excuse me, of endocrine disruptors is those xenoestrogens. And xenoestrogens are essentially synthetic or mimicking molecules of estrogen from non-estrogen substrates. And this is in that world of endocrine disruptors, the most driver effect of estrogenic action in the body as far as a toxin would be considered. Got it. Okay. Um, And then constipation would be a potential driver because we're not seeing that excretion of excess. Yeah. And even along that vein, right. So, you know, beyond the liver, the colon clears estrogen as the second tissue Mm -hmm. and um, that gut blood barrier will reabsorb estrogen. And so if we're not having good fecal mass removal, we're going to see higher estrogen recirculating through the body by that reabsorption. We know if we're in a state of dysbiosis or bacterial imbalance, that there is that whole estrobilome that we've talked about in past episodes. So if your microbiome is off and you don't have good gut flora and you have an overgrowth of a gut pathogen or yeast, this is going to drive more estrogenic activity in the body or more estrogen dominance. We can see with stress, 
Now, both ends of the spectrum, again, it kind of depends a little bit on how you're wired um, and where you're at with your history of the imprint of stress. Because we talked last episode how stress can suppress sex hormones. And we talked about that, you know, master hormone, pregnenolone, um, really shifting into cortisol as a survival mechanism. Well, we've also seen with stress driving excess androgens, which can be DHEA and testosterone. And in the world of DHEA, that can convert into estrogen as well. So for some women, stress might actually drive higher amounts Mm -hmm. of estrogen in their body, which is important to note. And then generally, the, the, the kind of most dominant, I would say, driver that's often overlooked is exposure to estrogen in hormone replacement or birth control. So even your standardized birth control, which is supposed to be a very low dose in some individuals, especially stacking that on a stressed individual right. or an individual with dysbiosis or that's drinking a lot of alcohol and stressing their liver, having even normal birth control dosage can drive estrogen dominance. And then especially we see this in the world of when someone's using an estrogen therapy in the perimenopausal or menopausal world if it's not monitored. If they're just taking a prescription estrogen replacement medication and we're not watching their estrogen levels, we're often seeing estrogen dominance. Totally. And a lot of times those um, you know, hormone replacement and birth control are just used as blankets without even testing. It's just based on you know symptoms alone. And then like you said, not monitoring. Um, and I would add to that list also genetic SNPs um, yes. and, and different variances. So COMT in particular um, is known to impact the way that we metabolize estrogen. So you could have multiple of those factors really stacked against you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, when we're talking about oral contraceptives, it's interesting because you know we tend to think of that as preventing pregnancy. And as we transition into the perimenopausal or menopausal age range, maybe we're not worried so much about pregnancy. However, I did see that um, in the late 40s is actually that secondary after teens of most um, surprised pregnancies. Mm-hmm. So there is that dual influence, but oral contraceptive pills are the most common option for perimenopause symptoms. So they'll bring that in as a blanket to help to regulate periods, to reduce bleeding and pain, um, to help with changes in skin health, as well as keeping the hormones at that blanket consistent level. And that can in turn um, reduce hot flashes. Uh, according to Harvard Health, birth controls can also reduce vaginal dryness. Uh, birth control pills can also reduce vaginal dryness and prevent bone loss while they protect you from some endometrial and ovarian cancers, um, as well as, of course, the unintended pregnancies. Because again, that's the second highest rate of unintended pregnancies in the perimenopausal age range where you're like oh I think I'm almost done I don't need to worry about six months with no cycle and then my daughter visited during um, Thanksgiving I had a whoosh of hormones and all of a sudden I realized yes (laughs) so you know what's interesting in that world is if you're in the unknown I've also worked with a lot of women in their late 40s early 50s that have had vaginal inserts for a period of time Mm -hmm. and you know they're they're due to, to replace it and they're like well I don't even know if I could get pregnant the best thing that you can do is get an FSH test or a follicular stimulating hormone test Um, and this would be during a break from your pill if you're doing like an oral contraceptive that has the placebo pill Um, that will help you to understand if you actually have the capacity for fertility or not Mm -hmm. Um, we're not going to recommend birth control y'all have heard various episodes we have out there and we'll put in the birth control updates episode Um, like a two-parter. We've yeah, got one of, as, well, as well as like way back in 106, mm-hmm. I think was that one where we talked about using more of the basal thermometer testing and family planning instead of birth control. Um, but I want to kind of break down maybe the forms of hormone replacement. So estrogen, combination estrogen, progestin, and then go through the side effects and considerations um, because most oral birth controls out there are going to be a combination of synthetic estrogen and progestin. Okay. So yeah, let's break down all of the different kind of delivery systems first. So there's pills, there's creams, rings, there's all kinds of things that maybe we've never even heard of. 
Yes. So in the world of just estrogen alone, um, we're looking at the most popular being pills. And so this is like Estrace, um, Premarin. These are some of the Femtrace, some of the trademark names of the brands of oral estrogen. It's going to be conjugated estrogen, typically about one to two milligrams of estradiol, and, and that's known as E2. Um, there are also cream forms of some of those same brands. So like there's an Estrace cream and a Premarin cream as well there are vaginal rings so like the fem ring um, the estring um, these are estrogen only rings and these can be more targeted for vaginal symptoms and hot flashes however the rings themselves uh, can drive nausea vomiting bloating stomach cramps because they're closer in that uterine mm-hmm. space and that uterine space as we've talked about like with an IUD um, there can be a lot more IBS like symptoms we've also seen the rings can drive breast pain and tenderness, as well as swelling in the body, thinning um, in the hair, and uh, vaginal itching or discharge, uh, as well as breakthrough bleeding in that area. Um, We'll go through the overall estrogen uh, concerns in a moment, which is where we get into like more of the cardiovascular and the blood clotting and such, which would be across the board from any of these types of formulas. Uh, There's also vaginal tablets like Vagifem. There are patches, um, and then there it's like the Villavel and the Villavel Dot. Those are the two main main ones that I see, or Estroderm, and then there are sprays like Eva Mist, and then there are combination formulas which are going to use, generally speaking, a estradiol with a norethridone um, acetate, which is a progestin or a synthetic progesterone formula. So we're looking at in this world, some of the pills like Fem HRT or, or Prem Phase, um, Prem Pro um, are some of the more known ones. And then there are also combination patches like the Combi patch, that's the most known one out there, and then the Climara Pro. And then outside of the world of estrogen and progestin, there are also vaginal inserts for DHEA. We talked about DHEA in last episode, um, where we're looking at, again, more of that steroidal support for tissue. And there is a little bit of DHEA we noted in the product by Dr. Annika mm-hmm. Becca. Jolva. Thank you, yeah. the Jolva. Um, and so this is that same kind of mechanism. Um, this is the intrarosa, and that's a vaginal insert with DHEA. Okay. So lots of different delivery systems, but um, all of them having various risks yes. associated. And depending on dosage or you know location of insertion versus patch, I'm sure they're varied. But let's kind of cover just the general risks of hormone replacement therapy. Yes. So again, this is even inclusive of birth control, like oral contraceptives that your teenager might be on. Um, We're worried about the risk of blood clots and stroke. And this is exacerbated in someone that has a genetic clotting disorder, of course, as well as smokers, um, more prone towards that oxidative stress. So blood clots and stroke are a big one. We also see an increased chance of gallbladder um, and gallstone issues. We see an increased risk of dementia, um, which is really interesting, especially if the hormone replacement is started um, at a later age. We see increased risk of breast cancer with long-term use, and then we see an increased risk of endometrial cancer, and that's especially if it's an isolated estrogen. So we're looking back at the research from the National Institutes of Health um, in that uh arm of the WHI study where this was back in 2002 they were looking at women that were taking a combination of estrogen and progestin and they saw that um, the data from the group of women showed that the HRT significantly increased the risk of breast cancer heart attack, stroke, and blood clots in the legs and lungs. And then in 2004, the NIH stopped the estrogen-only arm of the study. So they actually first stopped the combination, which is interesting because we also have heard in many studies that you know endometrial cancer is the one that we tend to see higher risk without progesterone. Um, and we'll identify specifically, again, there's a very big difference from progesterone and progestin. And all of these names, name brand and um, pharmacological interventions, if not 
noted specifically bioidentical are going to be using a synthetic hormone. So, you know, again, back in 2002, they removed the arm of the study that were taking the combination estrogen and progestin because of those risk factors of breast cancer, heart attack, stroke, blood clots in the legs and lungs. And then in 2004, they stopped the estrogen-only study arm. um, And these were women who had undergone a hysterectomy and were taking estrogen. And the data showed that the estrogen increased their risk of blood clots and stroke and did not reduce their risk of heart attack. Um, There was not as clear of an impact on breast cancer as they saw in that first arm when it was the combination of estrogen and progestin. Um, However, again, with close clinical surveillance, we have seen that estrogens themselves, especially when not balanced with progesterone, greatly increase the risk of endometrial cancer. Um, We can also see recurring abnormal vaginal bleeding. And then in the world of cardiovascular, um, this is where the big concerns are the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, invasive breast cancer, um, pulmonary embolism, deep vein thrombosis. And this was in an age range of uh, women that were 50 to 79 years during a five-year treatment with oral conjugated estrogens. Uh, Interestingly enough, the dosage of the oral conjugated estrogens in this study window was 0.625 milligrams. And as I mentioned earlier, most of the oral pills are one to two milligrams. So that would be upwards of four times the dose used in this study. Um, And then the study, again, was using um, the the medroxyprogestone acetate. um, And so this is a synthetic progestin at 2.5 milligrams. And and those symptoms, or excuse me, disease states were seen relative compared to a placebo. Super, super concerning that things stay on the market that have, like you said, four times the dose of that. Yeah. And and we'll even see that. um, And and that's kind of, I guess, transitioning the importance of bioidentical. Um, What's also really concerning, and we talked about this a little bit, but just in case you don't listen to all of our episodes out there, um, the estrogen pellets that are out there Mm -hmm. now, these are really new. Um, I've seen such flexible dosing and such cat and mouse with pellets and the metabolism. And really the biggest issue that I have with hormone replacement therapy overall is the lack of managing and monitoring yeah so a lot of times you know women will just go to especially in this perimenopausal menopausal age range they go once annual to their OBGYN or their doctor Um, they may note a little bit of tissue thinning or issues and instead of starting with hyaluronic acid or instead of starting with something that would create supple tissue they don't test the hormones and then they just give this standardized dosage which again could be three to four times a safe dosage Super, super concerning. Yeah. And then they're not looking over time, over six months, sure. over eight months, how is that being metabolized in the body? And is that maintaining an optimal range or is it driving dominance and excess? Yes. And like when we're working with bioidenticals, we're testing our clients every three to six months, I would say. So like between two and four times a year to make sure that we're managing that. And oftentimes we will have to adjust course and adjust dosage depending on, you know, liver clearance and what's going on in their body. Absolutely. And and not uncommon by any means to have to adjust dosage. And and that's because there's so many variables, right? So yes, like your liver could be taxed because you had a really social summer (laughs) or, you know, you might have different shifts in your hormones because of a high stressful work demand that you took on, or you might have been eating a lot more dairy during a season. So there, because of the impact on toxicity, diet, and lifestyle, it's really important to stay on top of frequency of testing and assessing values. Let's talk more of a functional approach and, and um, you know, who's a good candidate for bioidentical hormones. Yes. So when we look at assessing, um, which is really what we're looking at a functional approach, that would be starting from, you know, treating the root, right? So we need to know what we're addressing. So we're not just putting a bandaid on a symptom of this reduces this. We want to see where is the story of your hormones. And it would really be a disservice to overlook the adrenals in the story of your sexual hormone expression because of that intimate connection of the HPA axis or that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal feedback. Again, the hypothalamus and pituitary in the brain 
the adrenals sit above the kidneys, and the pituitary really loudest of the HPA axis in the world of hormone regulation because the pituitary is what's actually making hormones like your prolactin, your FSH, your LH, and really driving the ovarian hormone productivity. And if the pituitary is focusing on fight or flight sympathetic stress response, it's instead pusting out ACTH to stimulate the adrenals, and it's down-regulating the sexual hormone expression. So we want to look at the Neurohormone Complete Plus panel as a great assessment. That's going to give us a four-point cortisol assessment so we can see are you running stressed and wired or stressed and tired? Are those adrenals in an overdrive or an underdrive mode? And within the world beyond your cortisol and getting four assessments, which is key versus a, a really randomized blood cortisol draw, like I'll see that ran, you know, in clients right, where right. they might have really off adrenals, but in a snap shot, their cortisol might fall in range, but that was taken at like 2 p.m., totally randomized and, and, and not looking at a cadence or a quadrant distribution through saliva, and saliva is the gold standard. Um, but beyond the cortisol, we like to look at the DHEA because, again, that has direct drive into metabolizing into testosterone and estrogen. So we want to see, is that in an overdrive mode or is that suppressed? And we might start with DHEA instead of estrogen if that's suppressed and estrogen levels aren't dominant. If DHEA levels are low, but I see estrogen levels are high, then I'm going to be conservative and not give that person DHEA. I'm going to work instead with that glandular adrenal support mm -hmm. because giving a more lighter fluid of DHEA could just convert to more estrogen. Right. It looks like their body likes to do that. So, you know, we want to know and be able to mitigate some of those primary pathways of excess. Um, so we like to look at a four-point cortisol, DHEA, and then we look at all of our sexual hormone as well as neurotransmitters. So in our sexual hormone, we're looking at three different types of estrogen. Your estrone, which is known as E1, your estradiol, known as E2, and this is the most common used estrogen form, like all of those estrogen therapies used estradiol. And then your estriol or estriol, however you want to pronounce that, estriol is E3. And estriol is going to have more estrogen antagonistic properties, working to buffer the effects of estrogen and make them less dominant. So in the world of bioidentical hormone replacement and a functional approach, we're always, anytime we're playing with estrogen, it's always in an 80-20 delivery of estriol dominant of, of 80 to 20 dominance over estradiol. So for instance, that could be one milligram of estriol with 0.25 milligrams of estradiol. And that would be a starting dosage if someone is needing estrogen instead of, again, one to two milligrams of estradiol with no estriol in the playing field, which would really drive likely much more estrogen dominance if not using that bioidentical and that 80-20 protective balance delivery. Yes. Maybe let's even take a step back and define like what is bioidentical exactly and, and how is it different in terms of how our body utilizes it. Yeah. So when we're looking at bioidentical, by definition, it has to have the exact same chemical structure to what the body makes. So it is biologically identical in its chemical structure. Now, most bioidentical hormone is going to be YAM-derived, um, and when we talk about the world of FDA and medication approvals and patents, we cannot patent something that is bioidentical to the body, and so they'll use conjugated estrogen. So there's going to be a structural shift in the estrogen if we were to draw the organic chemistry of bioidentical estrogen versus conjugated estrogen there's going to be a structural change and that structural change is going to serve differently in the body than what the body naturally produces okay got it so and that's the issue is the FDA can't can't patent right. something that is biologically exact. So the pharmacological industry has to make these adjustments, and they're generally not favorable. They're favorable for their profit and their and their right. bank accounts. Um, but you know the body sees that then as a hormone mimicker 
versus a, a bio-identical compound. Um, and, and just before we go too far, the, the Labrix panel that we run also looks at progesterone and testosterone. Mm-hmm. So we look at those three estrogens, progesterone, testosterone, um, all of the cortisol, the DHEA, and then we even look at neurotransmitters, which is helpful because in the neurotransmitter bank, we might see elevated histamine, which could tie to dysbiosis. So that'll give us an intervention to regulate hormone. Or we might see um, really suppressed serotonin or excessive serotonin. And again, that gives us a window into the gut um, connection. Uh, and so looking at our neurotransmitters, maybe looking at that dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine made by the adrenals, those fight or flight chemicals, that helps us to really understand the story of the HPA excess, of the gut hormone connection, and even some detox story as well. Totally. And that really helps to fine tune those interventions like someone who has super elevated epinephrine, I'm not going to give them adrenal support because that's just adding lighter fluid. So we have to figure out like how to get that down, rein it in, and then maybe we can go back and and try to mitigate and support the adrenals. Right. So that would be someone that would be much more prone towards our recommendation of going high dose vitamin C, which can aid in the metabolism of those neurotransmitters, support the adrenal glands, and also that high dose vitamin C is going to play a role with supporting progesterone levels. And often when we're talking about estrogen dominance or estrogen concerns, it's when estrogen goes haywire and progesterone is not supported. And I will note in your question about that bioidentical versus synthetic, the conjugated estrogens tend to work more closely to estradiol, which is that E2, again, the dominant driver, but progestin and bioidentical progesterone have a world of a difference of expression in the body. And there are a lot of people that do not tolerate progestin at all, like driving dynamic migraines, sure. um, you know, really bad mood disorders mm-hmm. and such. And so that is a structurally differently metabolized compound, more dynamically speaking, I would say. Totally. Um, And I think just important to reiterate the testing. If we are going to go down this bioidentical route, don't just pick something up off the internet or off of Amazon because you can get bioidenticals like over the counter. I know they sell progesterone at like Whole Foods now. Yeah. Um, But the dosage there um, is like totally unregulated. And, you know, you want to make sure you're getting it from a prescriber who can run and interpret those labs. So making sure that we establish, you know, a conservative approach of like low dose to start and kind of ramp things up as we go on. Absolutely. Less is always more in the world of hormone. Any excess of hormone, whether your body is making it or whether you are using a bioidentical form and especially most concerningly if it's in a synthetic form, but any excess of hormone is going to be a stressor to the body. Um, You never want to be overburdened with hormone. You want to work really slow and steady and consistent testing, like you said, I think at least twice a year, but when you're getting going with considering a hormone replacement, definitely looking conservatively at that like 120 days out marker. And then if things look improved and good, then you could go kind of six months. And if they stay consistent and you're not adjusting your formula or your dosage, keeping that at a biannual approach would work really Mm -hmm. well. If you're adjusting dosage regularly because there's more dynamics in the individual, you'd want to look quarterly. Right. And, and, you know, also to note that hormone's kind of the cherry on top. So, especially in women who are still having a regular menstrual cycle, we want to address the root cause of why their hormones low in the first place before we just throw bioidenticals at it and call that solved, right? Absolutely. And so that's where often we'll layer in other things first. Like I said, so I'm thinking like that bio C plus for the person with the high epinephrine. And if they're having hot flashes, it could be an epinephrine driven Mm -hmm. hot flash. You know, maybe their estradiol is at a 1.4, which is a fine range. And their estrogen quotient, the relationship of their E1, E2, and E3 is balanced. And their progesterone is just borderline low. But we know the C is going to help with that. And then we're going to get them going with two scoops of relax and regulate. That's going to offset also the epinephrine and support that progesterone. And maybe we'll work with a little bit of adaptogen boost to help to support that whole process and calming clear and that might be all they need without going into the world of a bioidentical hrt yeah exactly okay so let's um come back to the estrogen dominance conversation and i think it's important to outline here um, that you can have kind of varied forms of estrogen dominance so it's not just too much circulating estrogen 
it could be estrogen relative to other hormones. Right. So classically, we think of just high levels of estrogen as estrogen dominance, uh, but we can see estrogen dominance relative to progesterone or testosterone insufficiency. And so this would show that if the estrogen is of normal range, but there is deficiency of the other hormones, then that's going to be expressed relatively as a dominance. Yes. Um, and then let's cover um, some of the symptoms of excessive estrogen or estrogen dominance. Like how would we know that maybe this is happening? Yeah. And so again, these might not just be excessive. These could be just the dominance as well. So this could be just based on having higher expressed estrogen in light of that low progesterone. But we'll see um, often with estrogen dominance, changes in sleep patterns, uh, changes in weight and appetite a higher perceived stress or stress response. Um, We'll see difficulty with weight loss or slowered metabolism. We will see bloating often in the uterine area or the abdomen. We will see swelling and tenderness in the breasts or in men, they might see uh, gynecomastia where they have male breast formation. We can see fibrocystic lumps in breasts in women uh, where we would see that associated with the estrogen dominance, uh, decreased sex drive or erectile dysfunction in men. We can see irregular menstrual cycles. We can see increased symptoms of PMS or painful periods, mood swings. We can see headaches with estrogen dominance as well as anxiety and panic attacks. I often kind of align estrogen as being the one that would drive more of the panic attack in excess, and then estrogen when too low would be driving more of the depression. Um, But progesterone itself works kind of opposing to balance out estrogen, and so the low progesterone copulation of estrogen dominance is where we usually would see the the panic attacks and the anxiety. They usually need progesterone, which is an anxiolytic or an anxiety reducer. Um, We can see that belly fat that I mentioned earlier, hair loss, which is interesting because we usually think of like estrogen as like being really healthy for skin Mm -hmm. hair and all of that, but we can see hair loss. Uh, Cold hands and feet. We can see increased blood clot risk uh, as well as memory problems. Okay. Um, And then we've covered kind of some of the risks within the world of hormone replacement therapy, at least, and and some of the studies there. But what about um, just risks associated with that endogenous excessive estrogen yeah so when we're looking at excess estrogen well really if if it's from inside the body or outside the body yeah yeah yeah. just high in the in the blood and in the body you know so however it got there um you know we're looking at that being a huge risk factor for breast cancer and ovarian cancer Um, especially we see endometrial cancer as a risk factor again without the progesterone Uh, We'll see that higher levels of estrogen can put us at risk for the blood clots and stroke. And then we know that there is going to be metabolic disturbance. There can be elevated liver enzymes and nutrient depletion, especially in like the antioxidant family because there's more oxidative stress with that liver toxicity. And then we can see that estrogen dominance can also drive thyroid dysfunction, which can then further exacerbate the already potential weight gain or fatigue and unfavorable body composition. Position. Sure. Okay. Um, so we've covered all the like scary stuff, I think, yes. by, by now of uh, risks and, and what can happen. Um, let's start to dig in a little bit, starting with how to address lifestyle for balancing out estrogen levels and like what things we can remove from diet and from the home. Yes. So we want to reduce exogenous or outside of the body forms of estrogen if we have known estrogen dominance. This is kind of what we're looking at, right? So, you know, this would be removal of estrogenic dietary sources. So last episode, you know, we talked about different phytoestrogenic compounds. Um, So we'd really want to be tight on removing like any form of soy isolate from the diet. So watching out for like protein bars or cereal products, health foods, tofu, tempeh, because the soy will be the most dominant in that family. And then dairy would be another one in the diet that we would pull out if we had elevated estrogen levels in an individual, Um, especially the dairy that's going to have the recumbent growth hormone in there. So we're looking for if consuming dairy, doing dairy that is organic, 
hormone-free, grass-fed, for those of us that don't have elevated estrogen, could work really well. You know, we've talked about the the balance of dairy and how immunoglobulins can be great, uh, probiotics can be a great source. But if we have known estrogen dominance, even if grass-fed, organic, beautiful, it's still going to have the steroidal hormone from the estrogen. And we see that based on the time of milking the cows, um, especially like late into pregnancy, which often occurs, that there's going to be a higher secretion of estrogen in the milk. So that's kind of dynamic to the life cycle of the animal, not necessarily that they're using a growth hormone on that animal. It could be a great raw milk creamery that you're using, um, but you could get varied levels of steroidal estrogen. And we've seen this measured in the urine of individuals that are consuming dairy. Now, this is the one exception of where, let's say that you are using milk for protein and other forms, potentially skim milk would be better because the hormone carries in the fat. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're always saying like use whole fat, non-homogenized, least processed is best. Um, But I'm just thinking if we're talking about like really elderly, I'm going like 80s plus individuals and they're trying to get some protein in and it's a comfort food that they enjoy but we're watching their hormones because they've had a history of breast cancer and are still on an aromatase inhibitor or a drug that's trying to limit their estrogen going skim for that population would actually be a good choice but that's really kind of far and few between when exception when i'll ever recommend pulling fat out of a product exactly yeah and so better in general to remove dairy until you get the estrogen dominance kind of under control and then maybe we could start to kind of pulse it in more as like a condiment yeah and we'll link this uh study on dairy and human health in the notes um which ties in a lot of that you know i i think that again if we're talking about someone that doesn't have estrogen dominance someone that has balanced estrogen levels grass-fed raw dairy full fat could be a beautiful thing sure. um but your consumption of it should regulate if you're going into testing because again testing is giving you information based on the conditions of what you're testing so if you didn't drink dairy and you tested your hormones and your estradiol was let's say at 1.6 which i really don't like it above 1.8 ever um you know the the range technically goes uh into the twos and up um you know if you're if you're going kind of borderline in the more elevated worlds then i would say that's not a time to bring in full fat dairy if you're testing at a 1.4 of estradiol and you've run historically low in estrogen and you're having dairy four times a week, then I would say keep going with your four times a week estrogen um, support with your dairy. So again, just noting that dairy does have a role. And what's interesting is I found that there's actually a lot of uh, dexamethasone used in many dairy facilities Um, and you know this is a glucocorticoid so it is like a synthetic form of cortisol that they're using like prednisone essentially in veterinary medicine for treatment of metabolic diseases in ruminants so they'll use this as an anti-inflammatory drug and that actually also has been shown to increase um, upwards of fourfold um, an influence of a stress response in people so there could be that stress adrenal connection from dairy consumption as well as estrogen so so all the more reason to know your farmer if you are consuming dairy right yes and, and know their practices and know that they're not adding any of that yes into and, the, the yes mix. and before we move on from dairy i want to highlight our naturally nourished grass-fed way because mm-hmm. that's probably going to come up in people's questions so when we're thinking of our grass-fed way This is sourced from New Zealand cows, and it is grass-fed, grass-finished. It is non-denatured, so it's low-heat processed, but it is also going to be fat-free. So you're not getting any of that estrogenic influence in the grass-fed way. Um, You're actually just getting the concentrate of the protein. And so this would be something that could be used for all life cycles. And, you know, maybe it would be better for, for the... 85 year old individual was saying with the skim milk to just make a berry based smoothie with almond milk and use a scoop of grass fed mm-hmm. whey to get that protein in get the immunoglobulins the glutathione all the benefits um, without the lactose without the casein and um, without the impact of estrogen okay and i'll link our pros and cons of dairy episodes since we've kind of opened Sounds up that, like that box yes <laughs> There's a whole episode yep. in there for sure. Um, let's cover plastic. That's a, a biggie. And every time I see a client who I'm like asking them, how's your water consumption going? And they pick up like the smart water bottle. I'm like, okay, 
you're so close. You're Yes. You're almost there, but we got to ditch that plastic. Yeah, so plastics do have those xenoestrogens or those estrogen-mimicking compounds. And so this would be a really big one to watch for in your food containers, especially if you're doing like these, you know, so many people are doing Grubhub and all of the like dining yeah, out, yeah. thinking of leaching from any of those to-go food containers, especially if those are being packed with hot food, like, oh, Thai hot food and curries kill yeah. me yeah, when yeah. I see curries coming from a Thai restaurant in those like plastic uh-huh. um, courts, uh-huh. you know, and you, and you know just they're like super cheap, low quality. Oh, and you plastic. just know the they, leech is got all the stuff happening. Yeah. So even if you're not microwaving right. the plastic, the food being put in the plastic at hot temperature is going to drive that leaching. And then of course you would not want to use plastic ever to reheat any food in um, because of that higher influence. And the deal with water bottles are like, well, you might say, oh, well, I bought this case of smart water and I keep it in the fridge or I keep it in a cool, dark place. Well, what truck was it driven right. on and how was it stored? Because it's a non-perishable item. They're not going to be worried about temperature controlled environment no. and shipping it. And so there's probably a lot of heat exposure in the process prior to you even experiencing that bottle that you're holding in your hand right sitting in the warehouse all of the things yes so as much as you can swap to glass and stainless steel in the household and the only exception I will say that I do very regularly is the lids on my glass jars Um, and so like um, if I'm talking about Pyrex containers and it doesn't have to be that brand but um, most of our food in our household is kept with a lid Um, I you know there's I guess you can use parchment paper under that or like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's various options, but to be honest, that's what we do in our household. And I just would never heat with that lid on and I don't pack it to the lid. So like the food's not touching. Right. So to me, I'm like, that's safe. It keeps it airtight and that's really all it does. And I'm not interacting with my food particles in the plastic and I'm not putting it in, in hot. If it's hot, actually I'll put it at room Mm -hmm. temp and then I'll put the lid on. I don't want to also steam out my food and create condensation. That's undesirable. So, um, that's the only place in our household that plastic is around if you will otherwise we have stainless steel water bottles glass everywhere and um, some of our uh, like ball jars we have both options of there are some of those BPA free plastic lids again but we don't fill the water up to the top we don't drink through them we take the lid off to drink um, and otherwise we use the metal tops but those do rust and you know Yep. And, and, you know, starting from an early age, like all of the kids stuff, trying yes. to stay away from the cheapo, like target, you know, um, kid plates, non-breakables to doing more of like a, um, silicone option, um, would be preferable or, uh, bamboo, bamboo or, um, metal. We use stainless steel for Noah. Yeah. So we can link all that stuff too. I have, um, Stella's bamboo plates mm-hmm. that we love that come in really fun, like ombre color. <laughs> they have like a girl and a boy version. Um, so we have like the peach, pink, purple, uh, mango color, uh, range and they're still, you know, not very breakable and, um, aren't going to have the impact of the xenoestrogens. Yeah. Okay, Um, let's talk more lifestyle. So ensuring bowel regularity. I think this is a really big one. So you want to be having a daily bowel movement to clear that estrogen. Absolutely. So that effect gathers and excretes. Again, I mentioned that the tissue in the colon will actually reabsorb excess estrogen if there's too much stagnation and you're not moving your fecal mass, and especially if the gut flora is off. So the first place to start is ensuring you're having a daily bowel movement. This is where phytofiber could be a really fantastic supplement tool. And I feel like we really don't feature phytofiber enough, Um, but phytofiber is our fiber supplement, which has a blend of soluble and insoluble fiber. And um, it's whole food based. So we're going to get compounds like citrus pectin in there, cranberry seed extract, apple pectin. um, And this is going to help in that binding and that detoxification of actually removing estrogen from the body. Also, relax and regulate could be a strong consideration here in the twofold. Relax and regulate can help with the magnesium bisglycinate to aid in the peristalsis or the pumping neuromuscularly of the bowels to help with bowel regularity. And then the myo-inositol ingredient there is the one that would play a huge role with ovarian health support and healthy hormone production. Um, And so that's where, again, I would really use relax and regulate 
prior to ever exploring the world of HRT because you want to nourish the gland before you're trying to overdrive the gland's function itself. And so it makes most sense to me to use a nutrient that that gland would need to produce estrogen and progesterone as we're getting into that perimenopausal mode. Um, and honestly, I mean, that's a formula that I've been using since early 30s um, and much very necessary for the whole world of hormone regulation as well with someone who's living with chronic stress. Totally. Um, and then if dealing with ongoing constipation or bowel drama, I think assessing for dysbiosis is really key, especially in populations who maybe have a longstanding history of, of use of birth control because we know birth control can really wreak havoc on our microbiome. Absolutely. And or if having been on uh, Accutane sure. or various antibiotics for acne treatment or antibiotics for a respiratory infection or anything in the last year of an antibiotic, I would say especially it would be important to check in on your gut flora. So doing our probiotic challenge, which would be using the Restore Baseline Probiotic, we'll put the protocol in the notes. And by increasing your dosage in three-day windows, we're looking at how how your bloating and distension changes. We actually have you use a tape measure and measure your waist circumference to see variability as you go up from 15 billion to 60 billion CFUs. And then also we're watching changes in bowel output, bowel formation, and then other varied symptom shifts that we can see associated with dysbiosis. So by the end of that challenge, you'll know if things improved as you worked up to that 60 billion that all you need to do is address the sterility in your gut to support health in your microbiome. So this would be upgrading to our targeted strength probiotic and having a probiotic rich food every day. If your symptoms decline or get exacerbated as you work up to higher dosage, then you really would need to address the dysbiosis by doing the beat the bloat cleanse. And there's so much therapeutic support in uterine health with our beat the bloat cleanse, as well as estrogen and progesterone balance, especially in those two main formulas that are doing the plowing of the gut, the berberine boost and the herbal immune. These are really supportive of healthy hormone balance. So you're gonna get that dual impact while you are killing off the overgrowth of bad bacteria and creating a clean field for the good gut flora to grow again. Okay, and then we've talked about the connection of um, excessive body fat or weight and excessive estrogen. So A, achieving um, a healthy body composition. Right. Um, and then B, maintaining healthy body composition and our muscle mass. Yes. So supporting if you are in an active weight loss mode, this is where we really want to make sure that you are doing that 10-day detox every time you're seeing a weight loss of 10% or more of your body weight. So if you started at, you know, 180 pounds and you lost 18 pounds, that is past time to do a 10-day detox. That's a really great way to pause and ensure that you are supporting your liver and kidneys and colon in removing the estrogen that was liberated from that body fat loss. So that's a really key piece of the puzzle. And um, in the world of weight loss, that's one of the best ways that you can get rid of the tissue that's holding the higher amount of circulating estrogen on your body. So for sure, this is where grabbing a spot in our 12-week food is medicine ketosis program would be great. Um, doing a phytonutrient-rich ketosis uh, where we're really looking at still a food as medicine approach, getting a lot of antioxidants, a lot of phytocompounds. That means that you're going to get a lot of still that good fiber to help with the bowel binding element, the liver support and things like your lemon water and such. Um, and then when you're doing keto, you are going to be upregulating fat metabolism and maintaining muscle mass. So the muscle mass maintenance is huge as far as health with hormone management. Okay, and then let's transition into food as medicine. So obviously the 10-day detox would be like a great place to start with just an influx of all of these health-supporting habits that you can maintain then ongoing. Uh, but what are kind of the biggies in terms of food? Yeah, so I think of the cruciferous family for sure um, because we know that this is where a lot of the research lies in these Eindol-3 carbonyls, which have been shown clinically to help the body to detox estrogen. So not just upregulating phase two detox pathways, which they do in those sulfur-containing compounds. We specifically see the I3Cs or Eindol-3 carbonyls aiding in detoxing estrogen. So if we know we're running higher estrogen, at 
least a cup daily of these cooked cruciferous vegetables like Brussels, cauliflower, uh, kale, broccoli. These are going to be great. And I say cooked because that'll have less of a thyroid influencing effect. Remember, there is an estrogen dominance and hypothyroid influence. So the last thing we want to do is then consume a bunch of goitrogens, which would be in the raw cruciferous family. So you'd prefer to do like kale chips versus a kale salad um, in this world. And you could do anything from sauteing broccoli with ginger and garlic. Uh, we have that awesome recipe for the whole roasted cauliflower with all the different warming anti inflammatory seasonings on that um, it's a fun one to bring to a party too um, and then looking at like I said our various forms of kale chips could all work well okay awesome and then um, fiber 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 would be yes. another big one yes so in the world of fiber we're looking at at least 30 grams per day. Um, so especially if you are doing keto, that means that you're going to have to liberate your carbs yeah. um, so that you might be getting a total of 55 grams of carbs a day. But if 30 of those are from fiber, you're not going to be kicked out of ketosis. Assuming that you were able to achieve ketosis, then you might liberate up after those first tight four weeks. Um, and if you didn't have a lot of insulin resistance to start with. So, you know, one tablespoon of chia seed can already provide us 10 grams of fiber, um, uh, we can be looking at our leafy greens for good insoluble fiber at a very low carb impact, nuts and seeds as a snack. Uh, flax seeds themselves have shown a really favorable role in estrogen metabolism, aiding in upping that E3 uh, versus our E2. Um, about a tablespoon five times a week could be very supportive. And then in that world of fiber, we also think of getting enough fluid so that we're not creating a, a brick, excuse me, we want to make a broom, not a brick. <laughs> so if you are upping your fiber, note that that will pull some of the hydration in the colon, especially if you're new to keto and then you're doing all this fiber, you know, ketosis plays a huge role with fluid in the body because the word carbohydrate holds water on the body. So when you go low carb, you might be already running a little bit low, make sure that you are getting ample fluid fluid with that fiber increase yes yes super important um, and then driving bile flow activating detox processes using like an apple cider vinegar liver flush um, or doing lemon in your water first thing in the morning I think could be a fantastic add-on yeah absolutely great there and then um, another thing I think of in the world of estrogen dominance is the aromatase inhibiting foods so these are going to be compounds that actually block the conversion of testosterone into estrogen so this is appropriate for men and women um, things like mushrooms chrysin in raw honey uh, zinc rich foods so red meats pumpkin seeds uh, these will all maintain the testosterone levels and not allow them to be converted into estrogen which is important for both men and women to have ample testosterone and if testosterone was running low this is where we'd really think of supporting muscle mass so using lean body mass uh, training or resistance training um, this is the secondary tissue for testosterone production in the muscle and so both using our muscles in resistance as well as feeding the muscles with ample protein. And this is again where maybe the naturally nourished grass-fed whey would be a really beautiful add-in to making sure that the individual is getting their minimum protein needs, which we're looking at really like a 1.2 to 1.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight as a minimum rule of thumb. Okay, and then let's move on to supplemental support and kind of round things out. Yes, yeah, so the biggest one I think of in the world of estrogen metabolism and estrogen dominance or too much estrogen and how to regulate is our Brocco Detox. So this is one that you could take one or two twice daily with food. Now, this would be the most promising and direct tool for estrogen regulation. It includes sulforaphane, which is a unique antioxidant that's found in broccoli and aids in that phase two detox support. Sulforaphane has been shown in research to not only reduce estrogen excessive estrogen levels in the body, but also to protect the toxicity of our cells by reducing oxidative stress while stimulating our NRF2 pathways and supporting glutathione levels in the body. So these actually protect against oxidative stress. The Brocco Detox upregulates antioxidant production pathways and it aids in reducing excessive estrogen. What makes the Brocco Detox 
really clinically sound and a more powerful tool is that it provides sulforaphane in the whole food form with broccoli sprout and seed while also providing myrosinase, which is the enzyme that is responsible for activating the powerful glucoraphin compounds. And these are what create the sulforaphane and have that cancer pathogen fighting and estrogen balancing effect. So we've even talked about Brocco detox in our H. pylori episode, noting that the uh, glucoraphin can fight against H. pylori. We see this also supporting as a gentle support for dysbiosis on a regular basis. And what I would note that's um, really important is the Brocco detox is not as aggressive as DIM, which is a DIM or diindolmethionine is a combination of two molecules of I3Cs or indole-3-carbonyls. And DIM really has been shown in research like with tamoxifen or um, estrogen inhibiting compounds in the drug world with breast cancer. And DIM can very successfully lower estrogen levels, but it can lower them very rapidly and very dynamically. So if we are not, for instance, in that world of estradiol, you know, if our estrogen isn't at a six or more, I would never use DIM off the bat. Um, you know, I'm really going to start more with things like Brocco Detox and our Reset, Restore, Renew Detox packs and the phytofiber and checking in on the microbiome. Um, but if we're really working with estrogen-related cancers and wanting to get aggressive, that's when then I would open up the world of DIM. DIM is not safe unless you're testing it regularly right. and you know that you have dominance in estrogen because that can drive bone issues. Yeah, don't bring it in just based on symptoms alone. Yes, yes. So don't read an article, blog, and buy DIM. Um, But Brocco Detox is one that you can use without testing because it's not going to suppress or block estrogen activity in the body, but it will regulate and reduce excess estrogen. But it has not been shown in studies, the sulforaphane or the glucoraphin, to inhibit estrogen or to lower estrogen to, to the dangerously low levels that DIM can. Sure. Okay. And then further supporting detox. We talked about that kind of semi-annual 10-day detox is a good reset, Um, but keeping the detox packs in, especially if we are dealing with known estrogen dominance, I think would be a really good bet. Yeah, I mean, these are great because you're going to get that blend of that phase one activation, which upregulates the liver gallbladder. We know that that's really important because bile is a conjugator. And what that means basically is a grabber or a gatherer. And so when we're driving that liver gallbladder activity, as I mentioned, excess estrogen can throw off the gallbladder. So getting that phase one um, capsule in there, as well as the three phase two capsules, which are what are in our ultimate detox, these are the sulfur containing compounds that aid in encapsulating and excreting toxins and or excess estrogen. And then we also include that antioxidant blend. So each detox pack has five pills, one phase one, three phase two, and one antioxidant blend as a really good way to support detoxification and estrogen regulation in the body while supporting high antioxidant levels. Okay. And then we talked about phytofibers. This would be like one to two teaspoons, you know, five upwards of seven times a week or, or daily. So that could really be easily added into, you know, a couple bites of, if we're doing dairy-free, dairy-free yogurt, like the Kalina yogurt, mm-hmm. um, or incorporated into your daily shake or smoothie, um, or just mixed with the, a beverage of your choice would be fine too. Yeah, I find nut butter to be an easy way to deliver it as well. You know, just take like a tablespoon of almond butter and stir in a couple teaspoons of that. Um, Maybe a little bit of water just to get it kind of into a slurry. I find that to be a a pleasant way to get it in with ease and then just following with 12 ounces of water. Okay, and then we mentioned relax and regulate. So I'd reiterate that at like one to two scoops at bedtime. Yeah, I mean, again, the big thing there that myo-inositol is one of the best ways to regulate your ovarian health. And so this would be appropriate in all ends of the spectrum of hormonal change, whether you're running high or low in your estrogen. Okay, Um, and then one thing we haven't hit on yet um, is B-complex. So we talked about this in terms of low estrogen as a support, but this can really be both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So, you know, B vitamins play a role with hormone synthesis, but they also play a big role as cofactors in phase two detoxification. And studies have demonstrated decreased levels of B vitamins, significantly increasing the symptoms of estrogen dominance while throwing off hormone balance. And especially the population that could run low in the B vitamins would be those that are under 
stress, high stress levels, or those that have been on HRT, especially like oral birth control or any of those synthetic formulas. So, you know, if you're doing estrays or any of those um, tools outside of a bioidentical, a daily B complex on top of the multi defense would be a strong recommendation. Yes. And that's why it's included in our women's hormone bundle, um, which also is going to include the Rocco Detox, um, as well as the Relax and Regulate in there. Yeah, so I think that that would be a really great place to start. And again, the Women's Hormone Bundle with those formulas would be safe to do without testing. So if mm-hmm. you're dealing with some, some symptoms and you're not sure if it's estrogen dominance, starting with the Women's Hormone Bundle for three months and then considering investing in testing might sure. be the best strategy. Um, and then another one that I mentioned earlier that we don't have down in this list is is the BioC Plus. Um, again, because that can help to regulate the adrenals, uh, which can harness the primary compound that or, or primary gland that's going to throw off sexual hormone balance. Um, and then that vitamin C also can support progesterone, which can help to regulate or offset that relative estrogen dominance. And then that opens the world of the last recommendation, which would be our stress manager bundle. So this has three compounds as well, Adaptogen Boost, Calm and Clear, and GABA Calm. So Adaptogen Boost is a blend of three different types of adaptogens, our cordyceps, rhodiola, and ginseng. And these help us to be resilient in times of stress um, without putting excessive stress hormone out. So this can kind of block that pregnenolone steel in some ways. And what would further really support that would be our calm and clear, which is going to offset that fight or flight response and bring us back into that parasympathetic space. Because again, at times of stress, cortisol is going to interfere with estrogen metabolism. And in men, we see more aromatization or turning that testosterone into estrogen. And then we see in women, the chronic stress, um, seeing that big dip of progesterone, which would drive that relative estrogen dominance. And the last player in that bundle is the GABACOM, which you would chew as needed at times of acute stress to offset that primary fight or flight neurotransmitter of epinephrine. Okay, so a lot of supplemental support that we could layer on, and all that information is actually also found um, in our estrogen dominance protocol over on AllieMillerRD.com. So I'll go ahead and link that just so you can kind of see it all in one place and select from those formulas. But I think like Ali said, the women's hormone bundle is a really good place to start and then kind of layering from there. Yeah, we'll also be sure to link in the uh, lab that we've discussed pretty at length, the Labrix Neurohormone Complete Plus. And make sure if you just listened to today's episode of 281, you also go back and listen to episode 280 because there are both sides to the estrogen story. And, you know, I know we put in a lot of the cardiovascular and cancer risks of hormone replacement therapy from synthetics, but there is a time and a place for many individuals, especially those with osteoporosis and a strong family history of bone fracture and such where they may be using a bioidentical estrogen for upwards of 15 years and it may have a huge improvement in quality of life um, and it could be absolutely very appropriate. The biggest picture is again N equals one and kind of individualizing yourself within your health history, your health story, the action and the ever changing demands of your body and what are your greatest priorities at this time and how we can go back to work upstream or work from the root cause as best as possible. All right, that does it for today's episode. So as always, the show notes are found at naturallynourishedrd.com backslash podcast. Uh, That's where you'll find links to all of the formulas we discussed and dosage and all of the things, study links, everything. Um, And if you're loving this content, please share it with a friend or family member who could use it and benefit from it. Um, And go on over to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening and go ahead and leave us a five-star review along with a couple sentences on why you love the Naturally Nourished podcast. And supplements and protocols and all other functional medicine tools for you, including labs, are all at AllieMillerRD.com. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
Until next time, stay nourished and be well.